You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Hey, Junior Birdman. I'm Paul Chowder, and I'm here in the blindingness of noon near the chicken hut, but talking only to you about the things that need to be talked about. You know what they are. Love and fame and nothingness and sunken cathedrals and the seer's traveling sprinkler. Nan will be home tomorrow. I want to be starting out. I want to be speaking in a foreign language. I want to offer an alternate route. I want to amass ragged armfuls of lucid confusion that make you keel over. I want to write songs, not poems anymore, songs. In fact, I made up another song in the car yesterday. It's a protest song. This is how it goes. I'm eating a burrito, and I'm not killing anyone. I'm eating a burrito, and I'm not killing anyone. I'm eating a burrito, baby, and I'm not killing anyone. The tune has a little of the who's behind blue eyes in it. The most useful thing I learned when I was in music school was not the augmented sixth chord or how to write a canon at the half step or how to scrape a certain part of the reed to make the high D easier in the bassoon solo in the Rite of Spring. The most useful thing I learned, I learned in orchestration class. The teacher said, here's the first thing you need to know. The orchestra doesn't play in tune. That's what makes it sound like an orchestra. It can't be perfectly in tune. If it was perfectly in tune, it would have an entirely different sound. It's a collective musical instrument that is always slightly out of tune with itself. Which is also true in a different way of the piano. The piano is tuned to be slightly out of tune. That's part of what gives it its character. The mistuning is called equal temperament. Also, Wood is a complicated, tissuey substance with columns of water in it, and sound travels from the piano wires through these long, cellusonic resonators, and when it flares out into the auditorium, it's messed up slightly. It's been batted around, and now it's warmer with a mist of imprecision over it. The timber has fogged the timbre, thereby creating the necessary out-of-tuneness, the naturalness, the untrue-trueness of piano sound or orchestral sound. That's what music relies on, the singularity of every utterance. Nicholson Baker is the author of nine novels, including Vox, Their Formata, and Human Smoke. In The Anthologist, he introduced the character of poet Paul Chowder, who returns in his latest novel, Traveling Sprinkler. Thank you for joining me, Nicholson. Oh, I'm just delighted to be part of the show. You know, these two novels struck me as masterpieces of American evasion. Paul Chowder is a guy who will talk and talk and talk. He has one thing on his mind, but that is about the last thing he wants to talk about. <laughs> I love that way of telling the story. Well, it's, I think that that's the great thing about novels is that you can get at things things through the, the slalom course of, of, uh, of misdirection. You want to, I mean, Paul Chowder is a poet, and he has written a lot of non-rhyming poems, and he is tortured by the fact that he isn't as good a poet as he wishes he, he were. And he also is not sure if he even understands poetry, or even sometimes he thinks, I don't even like poetry anymore. 
but that's what he does. And and he, so when he starts to talk about poetry, because it's his consuming passion, it reminds him of everything else that isn't poetry. And also, it reminds him of the woman in his life, or who's not in his life, and whom he really wants to be there. And I think these are two novels comprise an absolutely fabulous, uh, very realistic, down-to-earth love story that's told in the kind of fits and starts of the way love really works in this world. Oh, I'm so pleased that you read it that way. You know, love is is complicated. It is the grand subject. And it's hard to do it in a truthful way because it's, it's as you said, they're fits and starts. They're, we're, we're inconsistent creatures and we sort of concentrate on the, the love question for a while and then get get involved in other things. But yes, he wants to, his girlfriend is somewhat disappointed with him because he was up in the barn singing too much rather than writing the introduction to the anthology that is sort of the subject of the first book, The Anthologist. Um, and he lost her. He lost her. She lost faith in him. And that's based on my own, I'm happily married. I have two children. But this is sort of, this book is sort of an answer to the question, what if I hadn't met my wife? Or what if I, what if I had gone a little further? Sometimes when I'm writing, I procrastinate. I don't get things finished. And I can see a sort of disappointed tragic look on my wife's face because I haven't done what I'm supposed to be doing. And I, it's the most painful thing is to disappoint the person you love, I think. Uh, I think one of the things that's wonderful about these novels is the prose voice of Paul Chowder. He is so much fun to be with. And I'm wondering how this prose voice comes out of you. Do you just sit down and does it flow from your fingertips to the computer or on a piece of paper? Or do you have to like write it and rewrite it and scratch it out? Uh, how does this work for you? It came out of an experiment when maybe eight years ago when I was I, I decided to try to record myself explaining the complexities of poetic meter. What is iambic pentameter? I would sit in a white plastic chair out in the yard, and I had a tape recorder, or not a tape, a digital recorder going, and I would just talk into it. And I found that talking, trying to explain something talkingly makes the words come out a different way than if you're sitting at a keyboard. Because I, I, I've, I've, in the past, I've, I've written whole books in the dark. I wrote a book where about a guy who gets up early in the morning before there's any light, and he he writes this novel, sort of sitting at the fire, and by turning the the the, the keyboard, turning the screen down so much that he really can't, so the letters are just sort of hovering there as these ghostly presences, and and he's just typing away. So each book is a is a is an attempt to try, and that was called uh, a box of matches, but this one. Uh, was a, is a, the anthologist was a more spoken book because after all poetry is meant to be heard. It's it's we're taught we talk about the poet's voice. We want to th- hear the thing said in the rhythms that he would say it. So I did that, and then I set up a video camera and uh, videotaped myself explaining things, and then stripped out the audio and transcribed it. Did all sorts of things to try to get the voiciness back into it. And and then <clears throat> when I came to write the Traveling Sprinkler, it was I was in the middle of writing a nonfiction, sort of a memoir about trying to write protest songs. 
And I realized that Paul's voice was the voice I really wanted. I missed it. So I, again, started sort of recording myself and transcribing. And I had a further innovation, which was extremely helpful, which was that I wrote the I wrote most of the book in the car. This is an interesting aspect of this. I love this because the character is sitting in the car, both reading and writing, and and I thought that was so much fun. So, did you drive to specific places that where you found writing was easier, and were you writing or still dictating at this point? Sometimes dictating, but well, I have a Kia Rio. Paul Chowder, coincidentally, has a Kia Rio. It's kind of a beat-up car. I love this car so much. And the, the trick is it doesn't have air conditioning, so you, so the key is to find some place with, with shade. One of the devastating thing was, things was that at Planet Fitness, these groundskeepers went around and cut all the small shade trees out of the edge of the parking lot, and I lost my shade. <laughs> well, uh, now, wait... Paul Chowder goes to the Planet Fitness too. There's a coincidence. Well, the book is, I mean, the book is mostly me. It's me with some shifts of, of, of gravitational pull or something. But no, the book is, is very, it's an exceedingly autobiographical book. It, may, it becomes a novel when you start cleaning things up and shifting things and inventing scenes and putting things in different order. But I think I always like novels when they, when they really stay close to the wind, when they st- when the truth is mostly there, but but you've just had to make a few adjustments to make the, I guess the order of events happen more neatly. So the car was was is, I think, still the most comfortable place I could imagine to sit and think. It's quiet. It's it's got a very comfortable chair. I mean, I think it's the mo- the the driver's seat of a car is the most comfortable chair I know. And if you flip open the screen of the computer, of course, I was rewriting some. You you can sort of angle it so that everything fits. It's a little think. It's an isolation booth in a way. It's acoustically quiet. So I I found I loved sitting there and thinking. You mentioned the poet's voice, and you have a a fabulous disquisition on the poet's voice uh, where you describe it as um, the words themselves being the equivalent of a flayed skeleton (laughs) (laughs) as opposed to the fully voiced aspect. And you talked about uh, lecturing about poetry. You also are a poetry professor, so mix those up for us. Ah, well, uh, well. First, I just to clarify, I, I, I am personally never. I've never taught anything really. I'm a, I'm a novelist and writer because, I, and I, I have the problem that Paul Chowder describes, which is that I can't teach writing because I'm worried that I would have to actually say unkind things sometimes. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, and why would I presume? So I've never really taught any writing kind of thing, but I love the idea of teaching. And novels, I think, are really good good ways to teach what how the world actually actually works. And and the poet's voice is something that's always fascinated me. I love to listen to those old Cademan recordings of, let's say, Yeats, and you, you think, well, it's just a stands on the page. But then you hear him, and, he's, and he says, I will arise and go now and go to Innisfree. And he sort of, 
he's got this warble, and it's suddenly a wholly different experience because the words that are just these blotches of ink are actually magicians' balloon shapes, you know, those prestidigitators who can suddenly make a giraffe out of a long balloon. That's what's happening. Your, vo- your larynx is constricting. Your tongue is doing magical things. All sorts of uh, pre-verbal or subverbal things are happening in your mouth. Um, and we all know how to do this. And this is what the voice actually is. And, and yet the strange thing that puzzles Paul is we want to end up with a poem that is completely in which in which all that is bleached away or dissolved away and we just end up with a bunch of white bones we end up with the words on the page why do we do that <laughs> one of the things that i i loved about paul as a poet is um his the way that uh, he talks about the translating translation of poems, and I love his his take on haiku. I thought that was really <laughs> a lot of fun. <laughs> I haiku. Well, that came out of a of a personal experience in fourth grade of of a teacher writing this mysterious and kind of exciting word on the on the board in capital letters and explaining the rules of haiku, and I, and I just knew immediately that it had nothing to do with the English language. It may have made beautiful sense in, in Japanese, but it was, it was an arbitrary set of rules. And of course, poets want, everybody who's trying to do something difficult wants it to, to be made more difficult by arbitrary rules, but those didn't seem to, be, to me to be the right rules at all. The right rules are ones that grow out of the actual natural stress patterns and and affinities, sonic affinities that syllables have for each other. So haiku. Now I think, my God, I've read a lot of good haiku. Why am I being so hard on it? I was just I was intolerant in fourth grade, I guess. You know, the way you, you talk about this novel and the stories that are in here, the stories that make up the big story, it's kind of like a, you've explored the forest of your life, and sometimes you go off the real trail to make different decisions. You've kind of woven in these different, uh, what I would call, quantum versions of yourself, mm-hmm. where you've made, you go to the universes where uh, Nicholson Baker has made a slightly different decision with <laughs> different results. Yes. Well, that's why I chose um, the traveling sprinkler to be the kind of guiding metaphor of this book. It's a beautiful, it's the great American machine. It's this tractor-like device that you set, it's heavy, cast iron, set it in the garden, hook up the hose to it, and it sprays water, which is what a sprinkler does, obviously. But it's also self-propelling. It turns a gear, and the gear turns it kind of actuates these paws that in, interact with the tractor wheels in the back and kind of clinking sounds, very slow and tortoise-like. But the thing that's so great about it, the beauty of the invention, is that before you turn the hose on, the water on, you arrange the hose in the garden in, in the path that, where you want it to go. So, so you decide, I want it to have an S-turn here. I want it to follow this. So the source of its propulsion, the hose, is also the tractor's future. And it it just seems to me to be a perfect idea of what the novel is 
novelist is trying to do, which is to, to kind of make a, a track, a, a, a weaving path through the garden of whatever it is that he has to say. And then sometimes you make a turn that's too sharp, and the traveling sprinkler, because it's a little strong, chugging American machine, kind of li- hops the hose and goes off in the wrong direction. <laughs> and that's part of the fun of it, you know. I one of the things I thought that was great about um, the anthologist was the way you talked about poetry in that book and the kind of uh, the way that Paul talks about poetry in that book. It's interesting to me that in both these books, you're a prose writer writing about a different form of art and and singing the praises of that art, which is kind of contradictory. It's because. Um, Poetry was so important to me, not just because I was uh, an English major in college and had to read a lot of Elizabethan poetry and whatnot. I was a terrible Anglophile, very snobby. But after I graduated from college and was sort of struggling and trying to write essays and short stories, what I carried around in my briefcase were books of American poetry. Howard Moss, Stanley Kunitz, the great yellow New Yorker book of poems, which is a big fat book edited by Howard Moss, the New Yorker's poetry editor. It's got everybody in there. It's got Carl Shapiro and Elizabeth Bishop. And it's, it, it, on my lunch hour, I always pulled out, or often pulled out a book of poetry and read, read it. And I was always, I guess, a better person <laughs> for having read poetry. So I owe everything that I know, what little I know, about trying to put ideas, metaphors, images together in prose paragraphs to reading poetry in my 20s. So I think that it's it's sort of a natural thing to come up with a character who's a poet because I probably know a little bit more or, or have a more deep kind of connection and affection for for poetry, I think, in a way than for prose writers. I, I read a lot of prose now, but I, I, I learned to write prose by reading poetry. Thank you for mentioning, mentioning and lauding Swinburne <laughs> as an as a English major at UC Irvine. I spent quite a bit of time with Mr. Swinburne myself and enjoyed it greatly. Well, he's a fascinating figure because he beca- when I was in college, he was um, completely forgotten, neglected, not read. And yet all of the, what we think of as the imagists, Amy Lowell, and, and the early modernists, Eliot, and then even into the 50s, people like Archibald MacLeish and Louise Bogan had all grown up knowing that Algernon Swinburne was a god. He was a, he was a, he was a little kind of active, fast-talking man with many depend, troubles, and he became completely deaf he was still writing beautiful, amazing-sounding poems, even though he couldn't he couldn't hear what he was reading. He lived a long time. He was sort of he was, he was if you could sum up the nineteenth century in one person, it would be Swinburne. And he was so he was the person. If you were a, a poet who arrived on the scene, say in nineteen ten, you when I think Swinburne was still alive you had to contend with the fact that somebody had rhymed everything. Any word you could think of, 
he'd already rhymed it 15 different ways, and he'd already come up with 15 different metrical solutions to things that you are, were trying to do. It was overwhelming. He had over-fertilized the lawn, in a way, and maybe that was part of the reason that the lawn became so desiccated in the, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. As, as we meet Paul at the beginning of this book, uh, Traveling Sprinkler, he has, we find out, actually finished the anthology, and, and that has been published. Yeah. And I love your sense of story in, in both these books because you tantalize us with the continuous stream of what Paul is thinking about in any given moment, and somewhere out there on the edges of that stream is what's happening in his life. And, and I love that kind of perception of life. Well, thanks. That, that, I think, is true. I just Isn't it the way we actually live? I mean, you, you get up and you get dressed, and all the sorts of things that one does every day, and stories are, are kind of happening on the edges of perception. You, have, you might have a piece of major news which you have to adjust to, good or bad news, but it's all, it, it then is sort of digested or subsumed in the flow of daily existence. So, for instance, he, well, he has political unhappinesses, or he he learns that his he he lets us know that his that Roz, the love of his life, um, has has a radio show in Concord, New Hampshire. She's been she's doing very well, but she's met this brilliant contrarian kind of muckraking doctor who has a a low growly radio voice and he's funny and smart and and uh he has to contend with the you know the jealousy of knowing that there's that he has a rival and so he has little moments of indignation but then you know what what do you do then it's time to get on with the next thing drive somewhere do an errand and that's tr uh, that's why i love the texture of novels is that they can they can give us the the miscellaneousness of life, but include some of these troubling large events around the edges. The what Paul is avoiding in this novel, and the last novel he was avoiding the introduction to anthology. Here he's avoiding writing a putting together a collection of his own poetry. And instead, he starts to fixate on deciding to become a songwriter. Uh, so I'd like you to talk about this and your own experience. And what I love about this is the way the bassoon, not an instrument we think uh, associate with pop music, fits into this story so cleverly and so evasively. <laughs> Well, he wants to write a book of poetry because that's what he is. He's a poet. The next thing to do is to come up with another book of poems. But God, does, is the world really needing another book of poems from me, he's wondering? And he's got this poem that he's been saving for a lot of years called Misery Hat. If you, if you have a supernatural skein of yarn, you might knit it, and it would create a hat that when you put it on your head would allow you to feel all the pain and suffering in a certain mile radius. What would happen if you put on the misery hat? And isn't that sort of the, the, what we're up against in life is that we have all sorts of very upsetting 
pieces of news that come in. And if we really open ourselves to them, it's immobilizing. And so he thinks, well, maybe it should be called Misery Hat. Maybe the whole collection should be called Misery Hat. But his editor says, no, I, I just don't think that's, you know, upbeat enough as a, a book of poems. So he, he instead just, I guess, thinks, what do I really want to do? I would like to set and sing the pain. I would, in Spencer, I guess it's, is it Spencer's formulation? But I would like to, you have help. I need help. And the help that he got was from the evolved tradition of harmony and melody. And he relearns how to play the piano and the guitar and comes up with it buys a piece of software apple's logic pro which is a lovely thing allows him to layer all sorts of sounds together and he starts writing tunes and music to the songs to the to the words that he's that he's coming up with and so the book is really about a middle-aged guy rediscovering his own love of the, my my first love was was music and his and i just sort of bodily took all of my memories of play, of struggling and working hard and practicing the bassoon and and poured them into this book because i realized as chowder realizes that i'd been saving it up why do you save up the word bassoon was sort of the uh, a taboo for me i wouldn't even mention it because i wanted i thought sometime i'm going to write about the bassoon this thing that i have spent so many hours practicing so many hours that it pushed my two front teeth apart and i had to play with a sort of semi dislocated jaw for a while which hurt <laughs> um and i had a little moment of of success when i got a tuxedo and and got a a uh, job with the Rochester Philharmonic as the fourth bassoonist, you know. So I had this little moment of being a professional musician, and yet, and so I was sort of saving. But at some point, you think, what are you saving all these experiences for? Um, and and so this is the book in which I have a character just try to scoop all that up and think about it and make sense of it as a much older person. What what is the function that music can play in his life? How can it help? How can it help him and how can it help other people? It's so much fun to read about his discovery of music. And one of the things I really loved is the language that's associated with the music, all the weird names that these instruments get in the electronic world. There's just these, you know, shimmering ultra mod punk surf guitars. I, I, yeah. that, it lends itself. It's, it's amazing how much the music lends itself to prose. That's true. The one that really I loved was the dry funky talker, which was a kind of clavichord. But it, it does have a, you know, a Stevie Wonderish speaking sound to it when you, when you play it. I mean, uh, if you've, if you played around with software, you know what this is like, but I hadn't really done that. But the sampling and the, the quality of the sound that, that you get just by playing a, a little MIDI keyboard is intoxicating. It's it's astonishing because you can go anywhere. You can be a Japanese shakuhachi flute. You can suddenly be doing Balinese gamelan, which was very important to Claude Debussy, who was one of my heroes in this book. But 
you, the, the palette of all the sounds that you can be responsible for in a single sound is so enormously widened. And when I was trying to write piano sonatas as a uh, composer in, in, at the age of, let's say, 17 or 18, I sat at the piano and I had, you know, my own limited piano ability. And then I had to turn it into these little penciled blobs on a, on a stave. And it was so difficult because, because I was, was up against my own limitations. But you, now you can just sort of pick the Yamaha Grand Piano or the Bösendorfer or the, the Steinway and pick it. And then suddenly these, the, the elemental beauty of a simple chord on the piano just comes pouring into the headphones. Um, it's almost too good. <laughs> it, it's a lot of fun to read about. And what's interesting is, again, the way this, you know, helps his, the character kind of avoid some of the larger problems. But I think it's also interesting, too. This book does a great job of making the, the political personal. Paul takes a lot of this political things that are happening right now very personally, with especially uh, the drone warfare and his disappointment with the Obama presidency. Well, that is, the, I mean, I wrote it last year. It was it was in the midst of the election, and the word hope, you know, kept flashing through my conscious. I thought, well, how how completely destroyed and wrecked my own hopes had been because and this word drones you know it's it's almost fatiguing it's the problem with writing it's a it's a very dangerous thing i i've found when you're in the middle of writing a novel to allow political things in because they are so powerful they're so present and they elicit these huge emotions almost immediately that even typing the word drone warfare is a very risky act. And yet, I mean, obviously, we're all living through this. And we are thinking, you know, how do we respond to this thing? We're, we're sending things that sound like lawnmowers, unmanned aerial vehicles over foreign countries without permission and, and killing people because we think that they're bad. We have these decision trees and people sitting in, in places in the Southwest making decisions for us. And it's horrifying. And yet, how, how, much, how much do you open the door to that kind of unhappiness in a book that is, in, a book to, in, in this thing that we want to call a novel? It's just, it's, it's a very touchy thing. I almost think that I allowed in too much political um, concern. But then I thought, I just have to be true to the mixture, the mixture of, you know, love and poetry and music and buying a sandwich on a Tuesday afternoon and sitting in a car thinking about whatever you're thinking about, but also reading terrible pieces of news or reading, say, a, a a political blogger who says the right thing and you think, I agree with him, but what, what is he accomplishing by saying that? Or should I be doing more? So I, I have a friend, uh, Paul Chowder's friend, Tim, who is much more engaged politically than 
Paul is, and he gets arrested at marches and um, is writing a book about drone warfare. I actually attended a conference at the uh, the Arendt conference, and I heard this man give a long talk about the inevitability of pilot of un, of automatic drone decision making, where a drone would would fly over and use an, a computer system, an algorithm that would allow the drone to make the decision about whether a sufficiently few number of civilians would be killed in that particular attack and that therefore whether it followed the rules, rules, that the rules of warfare would actually be incorporated into a software program. And so I was horrified by it because, you know, I just don't think machines should be entrusted to kill people, I guess. <laughs> and what has helped me a lot... Um, mm -hmm. And what helps Paul a lot is is that I, I started to go to to a Quaker meeting. I'm not a, I'm not a religious person, but I went, and the Quakers are traditionally pacifist. It's an old it's an old religion. I'm not a, a theistic person, but I have learned a lot from sitting quietly with well-meaning people. And um, and I've what I've realized is that it is all it is. It's not even true to say it's almost never true. It's never true. It's never true that killing another person or blowing up something on somebody's head will help anything. It just never is true. And that has to be faced up to and acknowledged that, that something you can call something humanitarian intervention, but if you are essentially just blowing something up, it's not going to do anything except create evil, create unhappiness, create resentment. I actually came up with a song, a very simple song, that was um, only evil can come of evil, drown it with good. I just, those were the words of the song. I sang it over and over again in the voice of Paul Chowder. Is that on one of the ones that's on SoundCloud? No, it's, uh, if you get the enhanced, or I guess it's called the deluxe, which is, the deluxe ebook version of Traveling Sprinkler has 12 songs on it, all written by Paul Chowder, but sung, of course, actually written by me. It's sung by me, and I did the best I could with them. And it's just, it's just a voice and some simple chords in the piano. I, and they turned out to be Debussyan chords because I, I, tur I, I just, in the end, I, I love a particular prelude by... Claude Debussy so much. It's the 10th prelude. It's the sunken cathedral. And so the chords that I used um, echo that. But the words are, only evil can come of evil. Drown it with good. There's a, a great uh, disquisition in Traveling uh, Sprinkler where Paul thinks about how duels used to once be completely acceptable and custom and part of our civilization and now we see them as com essentially insanity <laughs> and, and how that that kind of thinking can just be applied further and further up the chain of violence essentially yes it does it, this there's a notion that the certain kind of um, violence is built into human nature and um, I think we have to really look carefully at that and look at the, the things that we don't do anymore. Most countries don't believe in capital punishment. You know, the British practice of disemboweling people publicly, the, 
practice in India of having a, an, an elephant stomp on a wrongdoer's head because as a, as a punishment, that's gone. And the same with dueling. We uh, don't think it's a, the honorable thing to do to get your velvet-lined case holding your pistol and, and have your friend take you out in the early morning and, and you aim a gun at somebody. I mean, that, all that is just seems almost comical now. So if dueling is, which was, you know, thought to be the, the most honorable thing that a gentleman could do when his, when, when he was, um, when his honor was impugned, is now suspect, maybe there are other behaviors that, that are honor, you know, any, anything involved in upholding one's honor has to be looked at very closely because it's so often just just a ridiculous thing that if you just talked in a normal way to the other side you could get get to get to a solution that would involve a, a lot less suffering on the part of the innocent people who are stuck in the middle one of the things i think that's so wonderful about this novel is the way it captures the flavor of everyday American life, the things we do, we get up, we wash our hands, we make a cup of coffee, we go somewhere in the car, pick up some food. I really like that kind of, the everyday aspect of this novel. I think that the the, the job of, my job is, well, I've written books that are, are uh, kind of sci-fi and out there. Like I wrote a book called The Fermata, which is about a guy who could stop time and and he, he it was sort of a magical ability he could push up his glasses and the universe would stop and i was excited by it because i thought well nobody's written a whole book in which time could be stopped and manipulated that way but obviously it's physically impossible but it was true to my own kind of early adolescent fantasy but i think most of the time what i what i try to do is write something that is fairly close to what could actually happen and I'm, and I'll, and when I and I and although there although TV is really great right now so often you reach a point in a TV show or a novel or a movie and you go oh don't do that it's because suddenly a gun comes out i mean how many of us have actually had a gun drawn on us or have or have fired in anger at another human being. I once was held up at gunpoint in New York City. That's, I mean, the most dramatic thing. I mean, somebody pointed a gun at me and pulled the trigger. And fortunately, the firing pin was out of alignment or something, or I wouldn't be here now. But most of the time, we're just living our life. And, and yet, we want to be, we want to be fully, we want to be as fully human as we can be. And, and to, not to be shirking whatever it is we think of as our duty, and and so the the question becomes what 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 how to live a moral life, and 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 stay a normal human being and not turn into some sort of completely tortured person who has to think through the the moral consequences of every single act because that also is paralyzing. How to stay how to stay reasonable, reasonably, how to stay, how to keep the ability to sometimes be 
to laugh or be funny or, you know, have life have some kind of extra fizz or effervescence to it. I mean, if you don't, if you're not enjoying life, if you if every moment of the day you're thinking about troubling things, that's a terrible mistake too, because obviously, well, what does life offer? It offers the ability to see all the glint and shine and beauty of things. So if we, if we don't do that, we're missing out. I love the way that Paul makes this move towards love and and the way that this kind of dance, but with him and Roz and, and the other man. And that's a, you have a lot of fun with that. Uh, how much of that kind of stuff do you know in advance when you're writing uh, it's to your story or how much of it just kind of flows from as you write, explore the, explore the story itself, the forest of the story? Well, I think if as soon as you introduce a third person, as soon as you have a, I mean, a love triangle is a, you know, a powerful geometrical shape and, and, um, Everybody knows jealousy. Everybody knows that feeling of, even if, if it hasn't been jealousy to the point that it's an imperiled relationship, but just simple, a simple jealous feeling is a very familiar one. So it's not hard to kind of dream that up. What happens that complicates um, Paul Chowder's life is that Roz has, um, although she's something of a, of a, a medical minimalist who want, whose show every week her show examines a different drug like Lipitor or FX or Abilify or something um, and has doubtful things to say about some of the treatments and you know why is everyone getting colostomies all the time does it make sense you know that's the kind of question that her show is asking even so she then develops extreme anemia and in the end has to undergo a hysterectomy and is sort of saved by American medical finesse. And so it was fun to actually, well, fun is the wrong word, but it was, it felt right to, to have a book developing a kind of head of steam of, of indignation about, you know, modern medical excess, and then have something come into it that undermines that that now suddenly she's made vulnerable. She has, she has to have surgery, and he has to take care of her. And maybe that's the moment when, he, when her doctor boyfriend um, shows that he isn't the man for her because he's maybe a little cold about that. So it was kind of exciting, I guess, to have it turn out okay. I love happy endings. You know, it strikes me that when you were talking about the way the book has an argument with itself in a sense about medicine, that throughout both of these books, the characters kind of have the little arguments with themselves going back and forth. Uh, these are real back and forth kind of books in terms of these little combats we have where we will worry about this and say, I'm this way. No, maybe I'm kind of that way. Mm. Yes, and I think that's that's that that's what the n novel can do is be inconsistent. And we are not creatures who have we don't start off uh the month of September with our thesis statement in the first paragraph and carry it through to the end. It just doesn't happen that way. We revise constantly 
and we're always we're always saying yes but that's that's i think the kind of central state of being a person who continues to reflect about about life so paul has many many doubts about his own poetical judgment about the poems that he includes in his anthology but also about and he's also trying to learn from other poets for instance there's a a kind of beautiful love affair that theodore retke and louise bogan they have a lost weekend together um and she writes that that uh, this young poet ted retke has made her bloom like a persian rose bush and he gets very stimulated by the whole story of that written in louise bogan's letters and and so he's trying to suck in knowledge of life in all its inconsistency from all these sources and then put it through the Cuisinard of self and come out with something that <laughs> seems plausible. I mean, I just think that's what that's what most people are trying to do. And, and it's especially difficult about the things we really, really want to get right. We really care about certain things. We want to be decent people, most of us. We, and we want to have the right political opinion. We want to write, we want to vote for the right person. Um, and those are the things that get us most twisted around and, and sometimes self-deceived, I think. So, uh, This story feels pretty complete I, in that the way these two books work, they're kind of like bookends. But I, I would love to see more of Paul Chowder. Do you think that's a possibility? Well, if you would actually like to see more of the guy, I'm sure I can. I, I, I feel, okay, in writing any book, I kind of put everything that I have into it. So with the anthology, I thought, wow, I've got every, everything that I have to say about this poet and his life I have said I, and I'm done. But then five years pass, and no, I actually, I want, I like him, and I want to go back and think about how he would react to this new state of affairs. So I would, now I really have a a bond with him, and I would like, and I also understand how he talks better now. And so in five years, I mean, who's to say? I'm sure that I could, (laughs) in fact, in fact, I probably probably have to resist um, starting another Paul Chowder book immediately. <laughs> well, no, don't, do, don't resist on my account. You know, the other thing, too, I love about these books is the, the sense of the landscape where Paul lives. You give us this really gentle and beautiful feeling of life, a certain kind of life that's still possible, which doesn't always feel possible when you look at the literary landscape. Well, what he, he lives in... Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is a, by the way, an extraordinary city. I mean, you if you like brick, Portsmouth, New Hampshire is the city for you. And he drives around, you know, does errands, and 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 I happen to live a little bit farther away from where he lives because I live in South Berwick, Maine, which is just sort of a few miles, a few miles north. the The books that I like best are, are the books that that. Are, in which you just kind of look around and you you just snatch a bit of the landscape. You're not trying to to exhaustively describe something. It's not a the prose is not a kind of description machine a, a, that's making a sausage of of what what is out there. It's not a clinical thing. It's it's that oh there's a 
beautiful Portsmouth mist today, or somebody has left a beer can standing. I mean, one time I, he, drove, he drives into the parking lot of Planet Fitness where he's you know, desperately trying to keep in shape, poor guy, um, and he uh, parks next to an empty beer bottle. I just threw it in because, or it was, it's bagel morning at Planet Fitness. I'm, all these things that are part of, I mean, I want to be up to date. I want it to be true to now because, and yet really sound like a novel. That, and and, and it's, it's actually hard to do that. Sometimes, sometimes nowness is, is so now that it's tiresome. <laughs> It, because, and yet you think, well, what would, in 20 years, when people are reading this book, they might value certain aspects of the nowness that I have seen that, that now seem a little overly intrusive. So I'm, I'm always trying to balance that, and I don't, I don't always get it right, actually, I think, but. Well, I think uh, these books seem to me to be really totally unique. I, I don't think there's that. I don't think I've ever read anything that has quite this particular mix in it. And I, I really enjoy that aspect of it. Thank one, you. One thing you said, though, you referred to the enhanced ebook version. Mm -hmm. Now, you're a man who likes his paper. Right. So, talk a little bit about making an enhanced ebook version and how you feel about that in terms of the paper. Well, so I'm a guy, I wrote a whole book called Double Fold about the fact that libraries were, in my opinion, wrongly guillotining volumes and microfilming them and then tossing the things out. And I don't. I still think that research libraries have a. I think that paper is there's a kind of just a, a quiet ability to wait that paper has. A book waits on the shelf, and all it has is its spine, and it says the title of the book, and you pass by it in, in, on your shelf dozens of times a day, maybe, and it sits there for years, and then something, something you think, well, I'd like to read a little Poe or Kipling or something, and you pull it out, and... And it's there. It's still the same thing. There's no necessity for software upgrades or electronic uh, electrons to do anything except bounce off the page. So I'm a paper guy. On the other hand, I I like reading books in electronic form, especially in the well, really most mostly in the middle of the night. I don't sleep very well, so I wake up around you know three thirty in the morning. Wow, that's when I wake up actually. <laughs> yeah. And and we now know that that's perfectly normal, so we're not strange. Mm -hmm. uh, but but you wake up at three thirty more. What are you going to do? Well, you can just lie there and wait for sleep to happen, and it's not going to happen. So so I have a little you know convenient iPhone like device that I can hold in in one hand in a certain kind of grip, and page through using my thumb, page through some book of nonfiction or fiction, and the and the the light can be turned very very low. And I don't wake up my wife by turning on the side light. And it's polite. It seems polite and kind of, it fits in with the night, you know. I, so I have read a lot of books electronically. So I don't have any, absolutely any problem with books being published on paper or electronically or both. I think that if we all went to electronic books tomorrow, which doesn't seem to be happening, that 
the job of a research library would be to hold on to those sequences of words in the form that they were published. That that's, that's the task. That's the reason I wrote the book Doublefold about the task of libraries because I, it is something that never changes. If something comes off a printing press in the basement of a big building in New York City, the, jo the Pulitzer printing press, that's the form that it should be kept in. If it comes out as a, an enhanced ebook with some songs attached to it, in my much less, you know, newsworthy version. Um, well, the point is that that not just that that there's songs there, but that some people like reading books in the middle of the night. I'm, or they like reading books in the airplane, or they just simply like reading books electronically. I know lots of people who are so excited by by electronic readers that they've read more books than they ever had when they were in paper. So, even though I'm a I am enthralled by the kind of amazing durability, even of fragile acidic paper. I'm a guy who, I'm I'm perfectly happy to have things come out electronically, and I'm privileged. I I think it's a, you know, the notion that I could write these songs, in because as I was writing the book, I was also writing the songs, that I could write the songs and finish them and write the book and finish it, and that the two could come out together is really an exciting thing for me, you know. So I'm, I am, couldn't be happier with the ebook version. You talked about writing the songs. One of the things that struck me as I read this book, so many books we read these days, when you read them, if they have any kind of like historical aspect to them, you can just go, oh, I want to go on Google and look this up. This was a book where you wanted to go onto iTunes and download all the music you referred to. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I, and, and, and uh, yeah, YouTube is a just, I, I'm fascinated by YouTube. And, and of course, YouTube is the place where we really hear people's voices people gropingly trying to explain something that's happened in their lives. I mean, not just, not the cute things about cats, but just somebody has had some painful or funny thing happen. It's a new medium. And um, so, and, and I, and that's why I kind of keep throwing in little references to YouTube in the book, because it's part of the intellectual landscape that we all deal with. And we're always checking. I mean, I, I, I certainly do, but I think everybody does. You read something and there's a moment of curiosity and you just take two seconds and read up on whatever it is. Um, I actually love this uh, performance of, of a, I guess it's a Beth Orton performed song written by somebody else, but by Stephen Fearing, Canadian songwriter in a Paris hotel room. And it's and the only way you can see or hear this performance is on YouTube because somebody was there with a camera. So I thought, what would be the best use of my time in this paragraph? Um, I could talk about Beth Orton or something, but no, I want people to actually see this YouTube clip. So I actually included the whole uh, URL of it in the novel. Well, it, this novel makes for such a wonderful reading experience, and, and I think that the way you put together all these pieces of a real life, a life now, it, it's it's a, a kind of a skill and done with a, a a verve that I've not seen anybody else put together anything particularly like this. Well, gosh, thank you. I I have 
you know, I think every writer goes through sort of a roller coaster ride of sometimes thinking it, that it's going very well and sometimes being full of doubts. One of the things that I found was extremely helpful in writing this book is that uh, Paul Chowder discovers, he goes into a cigar store and says, I need to finish a book. I want you to give me I want you to give me a cigar that will help me finish my book of poetry. <laughs> and the guy says, well, what do you want? You want a robust, robust cigar? And he says, I want something that just, you know, mops the floor with me. And I found that, and that's all based on my own experience. You go into these sort of humidor rooms. They're, they look like libraries, you know, except instead of books, it's cigars. <laughs> and um, he, the guy said, you want to smoke this? It's a Fausto. And I thought immediately, Fausto? I mean, what a, what a beautiful name for the terrible decision that you're making. <laughs> I'm going to make the Faustian decision. So I, um, while I was writing it in the car with the window slightly cracked so that the smoke would go out, uh, I smoked a lot of cigars. And that helped me with the moments, the terrible moments of self-doubt that every writer has. It's just sort of a helpful thing to have this big nasty plug of tobacco in your mouth thinking I'm, I'm going to do something out of character and finish this book. I've been speaking with Nicholson Baker. His new novel is Traveling Sprinkler. Thank you for joining me, Nicholson. Oh, it's been real fun. Thank you for these wonderful questions. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.